to the All Truth is God's Truth program. Since God is our sovereign creator, all truth belongs to Him. All truth is from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Therefore, the pursuit of truth must be by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. I'm your host, Jared Moore. We've got a great show for you today. I've got two segments. Uh, The first one is called Pro-Choice Heretic, and the second is Interacting with Atheists. And we're going to talk about how love is more than just a mere physical process. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, let's dive right into our segments. It's titled Pro-Choice Heretic. So in the beginning, God created mankind, body and soul, male and female in his image. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Matthew 10, 28. God made mankind for the purpose of mirroring him, reflecting him. So in light of creation, the image of God in man is meant to be displayed physically in a physical world. You know, that probably goes without saying. Body and soul exist in unity, and they make up the human nature. Natures do not act on their own. Rather, persons act through their natures. It's not to say that uh, persons can be separated from their natures. They, they cannot be separated from their natures. After all, per- persons are the acting subjects. So natures do not subsist in themselves, but in persons. And so my whatness is what I am, so a human being, and my who-ness is who I am, so that would be the person, Jared Moore. So what am I, what is doing something, a human being, if I pick up this pencil, and who is doing something? Well, Jared Moore is picking up the pencil. And so human persons act in and through their natures, their souls and bodies, simultaneously to make up a human being in unity. So one cannot act through his soul without also acting through his body unless the soul has been separated from the body, meaning that the body is dead. So in other words, the soul is the non-physical substance, and the body is the physical substance, and these make up a single substance, a capacity known as the human nature. So if you have a human nature, you necessarily have a person. If you do not have a human nature, you necessarily do not have a person. So to summarize, the person is the acting subject, and persons act in and through their natures. To have a human nature on earth, one needs... A human body, so regardless of how minimal that human body may be, and a human soul. If the body is ensouled, the soul is embodied, and a human nature and person exists. You know, with these truths in mind, with these truths in mind now, we need to ask, uh, does Scripture teach that human embryos are human natures that subsist in persons? And the answer to our question is found in understanding the most important human uh, being who's ever lived, uh, Jesus Christ. And so we come to our our main point, emphasizing who Jesus Christ is. He was fully human, a uh, human nature subsisting in a divine person from conception. And so for Jesus Christ to represent the human race, he had to come from Adam's race. According to Genesis 3.15, talking about the seed of the woman that's going to come and crush the serpent's head. You know, Mary is treated as Jesus' mother, not because she was a mere surrogate for the implanted embryo of Christ, but because it was her egg that was fertilized by God miraculously. 
The same process that you and I went through in embryonic stage onward to birth is the same process Jesus Christ went through. Yet he was not conceived in iniquity, in sin like us, because he was conceived sinless by the Holy Spirit from his Father, the first person of the Trinity. And that's found in Matthew 1.18, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5. So before Jesus was conceived in Mary, it's interesting to note that her cousin Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. Now John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, according to Luke 1.15 and 41. An angel told Mary she would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit and that Elizabeth, her cousin, was already six months pregnant. So Mary then hurried to see Elizabeth. It's what the text says. Mary greeted her when, when she got there, and John the Baptist jumped in Elizabeth's womb. And that's found in Luke 1. The Bible says in Luke 1, beginning in verse 42, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So it had only been a few days or a few weeks at the most since Mary became pregnant with Jesus. She was still very early in the first trimester. It's even possible that the embryo had not even attached to the uterine wall yet because that process takes uh, between 6 and 10 days. And so based on what Elizabeth said to Mary, Mary was already pregnant when she entered the room to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth referred to her baby as to Curio, the Lord. And so with that in mind, with that understanding in mind, uh, that within just a few days or up to a few weeks, um, Jesus, you know, the divine person united to human nature, was already fully human in Mary's womb, so much so that Elizabeth referred to him as my Lord or as the Lord. Today, there are two dominant positions uh, when it comes to the discussion of abortion, and they're known as pro-life and pro-choice. Those who affirm the pro-life argument believe uh, babies are living human persons from conception. All that human beings need to possess in order to be considered persons, they possess this from conception. You know, on the other side, though, there are those who affirm the pro-choice argument. They believe that mothers should have the choice concerning whether or not to bring their babies to delivery because only they should determine what to do with their own bodies. Since the baby's inside the mother's body, she alone should have control over her body, or so that's how the argument goes. And some of this movement even justify abortion by arguing that babies are not human persons until they possess higher brain function, like self-consciousness, autonomy, etc. And so this so-called transformation from a fetus or a clump of cells into a human being takes place at some point late in the second trimester. You know, if the, if the pro-choice movement is correct about when personhood begins, what does this say about Jesus Christ at conception? What does it say about God the Son incarnate? Was he something less than human from conception to late in the second trimester or delivery? If so, what was he, and how does that fit with orthodoxy? And so that moves to the question of orthodoxy and what the church has affirmed from very early in her history. And let's, for that, we're going to look at, uh, for example, we're going to look at the Creed of Chalcedon. Now, the Chalcedonian Creed was written due to the heresies forming in the early church. They needed to precisely respond 
to these heresies and have something that the church could confess together concerning what the Bible teaches. And the goal was to prevent error to answer heresy. And so they had a fourth ecumenical council in Chalcedon in 451, and the result of that council was what we know now as the Chalcedonian Creed. And this is what it says. It says, Following then the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach that it is to be confessed that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same God, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, true God and true human, with a rational soul and a body, of one substance with the Father in His divinity, and of one substance with us in His humanity, in every way like us, with the only exception of sin, begotten of the Father before all time in His divinity, and also begotten in the latter days in His humanity of Mary the virgin-bearer of God. This is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, manifested in two natures without any confusion, change, division, or separation. The union does not destroy the difference of the two natures, but on the contrary, the properties of each are kept, and both are joined in one person and hypostasis. They are not divided into two persons, but belong to the only begotten Son, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All this, as the prophets of old said of him, and as he himself has taught us, and as the creed of the fathers has passed on to us. End quote. The Chalcedonian definition, it rejected heresy while reaffirming what had been done in the three previous great ecumenical councils. Council of Nicaea in 325, it affirmed that Christ is fully God. Uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381, it uh, affirmed that Christ is fully man and that the Holy Spirit is fully God. And the Council of Ephesus in 431, it argued that Christ is one divine person with two natures, fully divine and fully human. And so the Council of Chalcedon affirmed what they affirmed in the previous councils, and then it also further clarified that uh, the two natures of, of Christ did not mix. So the two natures, Christ is uh, fully human, fully divine. And uh, so he's God the Son incarnate, the divine person united to a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. And so these two natures are united in the person of God the Son. And so there's no mixture of the two natures and there's no division of the two natures. They're united in Christ. And so there's distinction, not division. And so it's important for us to understand that. So this Chalcedon, this uh, confession, it drew the boundaries of orthodoxy for discussion of the God-man Jesus Christ, uh, even to the present day. And so we need to notice that the Chalcedonian Creed, it argued that God the Son is fully God and fully man. We also notice that they argued that God the Son is united to two natures, divine and human, which means that God the Son has never been united to anything less than a human nature. Thus, in order to affirm the pro-choice argument that a baby is less than human until late in the second trimester, pro-choice advocates must also argue that God the Son incarnate was less than human until late in the second trimester. To argue that God the Son incarnate is less than human at any point in his life is heresy. You know, you can't separate the two. You can't say that a baby is not a human being um, until late in the second trimester, without saying that Elizabeth was wrong and, and saying that the Holy Spirit was wrong, because the Holy Spirit's the one who brought that to her mind. I mean, what was John the Baptist leaping over in the womb of Elizabeth if that baby in Mary's womb at that time was a mere clump of cells? And we, we know the answer to that. 
the reality is that is that baby was God the Son incarnate. That baby was fully human. He was Lord. Elizabeth was right. And so we've got to wrestle with this. What does this mean? It means that all babies, all babies are human beings, fully human from conception. And so what do the scriptures say? The Bible teaches that God the Son incarnate, he was God the Son incarnate from conception. So returning to Luke uh, 1, 26-41, John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit while in the womb, jumped for joy due to his Lord and Savior entering the room as a divine person united with a human embryo. He's the God-man. The baby's the God-man in Mary's womb. Remember, natures do not subsist in themselves. They subsist in persons. God the Son had already united with his human nature at conception. For Elizabeth called him the Lord. Though it was very early in the first trimester, God the Son did not unite with a mere fetus or a mere clump of cells. That would mean there are two incarnations. God the Son clump of cells and God the Son incarnate which adds a heretical nature to Christ in addition to his full humanity and full deity. In other words, how can you affirm that babies are not fully human in the first trimester and affirm that Christ was fully human in the first trimester? How can you affirm both of those things? They're mutually exclusive. You can't. You can't. And so if you affirm that babies are not fully human in the first trimester. You have to necessarily affirm that Christ was less than human when Elizabeth called him my Lord. Additionally, due to Adam's sin, sinful mankind needed a second Adam, not some other substance incapable of sin. You know, clumps of cells do not need saviors, for they do not and cannot sin. Only persons are sinners, and only persons sin. Therefore, God the Son united with the human nature, embryo, think body and soul, not an inhuman clump of cells. John the Baptist did not leap over what Mary's fetus would become. He jumped for joy over what her embryo already was, even a few days in utero. God the Son incarnate. Jesus Christ, human nature, subsisting in his divine person from conception. To argue otherwise is to deny orthodoxy, to deny scripture, and to affirm heresy. So therefore, listener, if you consider yourself pro-choice, you just might be a pro-choice heretic. If you affirm the full humanity and full deity of Jesus Christ, then you must also affirm that if your Savior was fully human from conception, then so is every other human being who has ever lived or will live. You know, as uh, the Southern Baptist of Vodibacum says, the only differences between an infant and an embryo are age and location. And so, Christians, it's time to leave abortion on the ash heap of history. The Scriptures tell us who a person is. If Jesus Christ was a full human being from conception, then so are we, and so is, uh, so is every other baby that has ever been conceived. The blood of millions of dead babies cry out, We are persons! Will we listen to them, or have we become dull of hearing? All right, we've come to the time where we interact with atheists, and particularly today we're talking about love. Now, Nancy Piercy in her book, Finding Truth, Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, says this. She says, haven't we all heard that love is really nothing but a product of chemical reactions? Current theories in neuroscience convey the impression that love can be reduced to neurotransmitters and circuits in the brain. A Wall Street Journal article suggests that Valentine's Day cards 
should not feature hearts, but images of a squishy gray blob, the brain. Instead of saying, I love you, the knowledgeable lover would say, darling, dopamine floods my caudate nucleus. Every time I look at you, (laughs) good luck with that. Haven't we all met cynics who insist that morality is nothing but self-interest in disguise? In ancient Greece, the sophists argued that people do what serves their own advantage and afterward invent a moral code to justify their behavior. Today, an updated version of sophism is taking the college classroom by storm, a theory called evolutionary psychology. It claims the altruistic behavior has been programmed into our genes by natural selection because of its survival value. We are kind to others only so that they will be kind to us in turn, which is reciprocal altruism, or we are kind to those who share our gene pool because we have a vested biological interest in passing our own genes to the next generation, which is kin altruism. Evolutionary psychology reduces all human behavior to mass self-interest. In practice, people often find ways to avoid the reductionistic implications of their worldviews. Because humans are made in God's image, they often do treat others with dignity and respect. They engage in humanitarian projects and advocate for human rights. The problem is that non-biblical worldviews provide no logical basis for such altruistic behavior. For example, the late Richard Rorty was revered as a philosopher of democracy, yet he wrote, begin quote, I do not know how to justify or defend social democracy in a large philosophical way, end quote. He was acknowledging that he had no basis for his own highest ideals. And that ends the Piercy quote. What's amazing to me is that atheists, even though they have no moral basis for their love for their families and friends, they'll still live out somebody else's worldview. You know, they they argue for scientific validation and scientifically validating what they do and, and how they live and their beliefs, and yet they live contrary to those beliefs. They see no reason to have a basis for loving their spouse or monogamy or loving their children. They find no reason to have a basis, something to undergird that, a foundation of that, or a scientific validation of that prior to actually doing it. And the reason for that is because they live in God's world. There's no other world that man can live in. Man must live in this world. It's the only one we got. And this world is God's world. And every time an atheist goes home and loves his wife, loves his children, or even loves himself for that matter, or herself, that person is living in God's world. That person is acknowledging, even in rebellion against God, they cannot help but love others and love themselves and self-serve precisely because the fact that they're made in God's image. The movie Interstellar, which is by Christopher Nolan, it's a very interesting movie, but it's, it's full of physics throughout. And yet, the main premise of the movie is that love is greater than all things. The supporting actress in the movie, Anne Hathaway, makes this statement. She says, Love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. So if you've seen Interstellar, you see where they're they're trying to grasp at this. You know, it's full of physics. It's full of science. But then they basically say that love is something you experience, and even though it can't be scientifically validated, it's because it's basically greater than science. Science can't measure it because it's greater than science. It transcends dimensions of time. You know, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. 
We can perceive it, but we cannot scientifically validate it. It's just it's just very a very interesting concept where you have people, you have people in Hollywood who are doing their best to scientifically validate love. And in this case, this movie says that we perceive it, but we cannot scientifically validate it. There's no need. Perception is enough. And yet, Christians would argue the same thing. That sounds an awful lot like faith. It's the Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so, atheists, when you go home and love your children and love your spouse, you're admitting that you live in our God's world and not the atheist God's world or not in a mere product of evolution, you believe that love is something beyond mere processes in your brain, mere matter in motion. You believe there's something greater to it, or you wouldn't go home and love your spouse and love your children. And so if you're going to argue that love is only a process in your brain, a physical process, that's all it is, and you you have physical processes for football or sports or or for your job, or for your dog, or for for all kinds of things. And if there's no distinction among those, and if the only distinction is, oh, my, my wife and children, my neurons, you know, fire a little more for them. If that's the only thing you got, well, that love is worthless. There's not much to it. For Christians, we believe God is the fountain of love, and that the reason why we love Him and others is because we are made in his image. We're made in his image to reflect him. And we are drawn to other people. And we have this innate desire to love others and to love ourselves. And it's because of who made us. It's because of who created us and the value that he places on us. So atheists, I want you to I want you to either prove that love is something greater than physical processes, or I want you to live out your worldview. If you can't scientifically validate love as something greater than mere processes, then I want you to live like that. And what's crazy is that if you live out that worldview, in other words, if you cease to love, if you start viewing it as a mere physical process, you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. I mean, that is the true path because love loses its meaning if all it is is a physical process, if that's all it is, just a chemical reaction in your brain. I mean, it's exactly what that Wall Street Journal article that Nancy Pierce quotes about Valentine's Day and sending a, a card from this. It shouldn't have a heart on it. It should have a brain on it because that's all it is. No feeling behind it. No, just physical processes. But for Christians, it's from the fountain of love. It's from God himself. God is love. And because we are made in his image, we seek to love him and seek to love others and to love ourselves. And so love comes from God. And everyone who loves does so because they're made in God's image. All Truth is God's Truth is a bi-weekly podcast written and produced by me, Jared Moore. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review. Also, if you enjoyed the show, you want to encourage me to keep at it, you want to buy me a cup of coffee. You can donate on my website, jaredmore.exaltchrist.com. You can also find me on social media, on Twitter at Jared H. Moore, or on my website, or on Facebook at All Truth Is God's Truth. Until next time, enjoy God and His grace by taking all truth and connecting it back to its rightful owner, by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Savior, I see his grace is amazing. I persevered to the end. No